Welcome to another edition of the Darkest Hour Podcast, the show that delivers thorough, loving autopsies of horror films past and present. The theme of this season, uh, the season that is now in year two, <laughs> is every night is Halloween. And that means we're working our way through each installment in the Halloween film franchise. Tonight's subject is Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. I am John Evans, and I am joined by my co-host, the one, the only, Vikram Wheat. How the hell are you tonight, Vic? John, I'm doing great. I almost called you Mike. Uh, <laughs> oh. But that's all right. We're adjusting. It's we all right. It's we miss you, some... Mike. <laughs> that's right, Mike. We do miss you. Uh, there's going to be some bumps in the road. I hope that uh, we both sound a little better. Uh, John and I, over the holidays, got together. And by got together, I mean I asked John what microphone I should get. Uh, and he sent me a link to the microphone that he got. So we are both recording on what is now hopefully a little bit more professional recording equipment. Um, yes, so. audio, audio Technica microphones, the podcasting and streaming pack, if anyone's uh, doing this and is interested and likes the way we sound. I don't know. We still have to get the settings all perfect. But, uh, yeah, hopefully the product will be better um, from that standpoint. And so. Audio Technica, if you're listening, we could use some advertising dollars. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. Like, flip us a check, man. Come on. Yep. There you go. Um, also, I just want to say that I, for whatever reason, this movie will always be in my head, Halloween 666. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I know that that was only sort of briefly the title. It just stuck in my head that way. And that was, I almost Googled Halloween 666 when I was trying to find some information on it. I think the script uh, had that name originally. Obviously, the movie is most famous for having a, you know, very distinct two versions out there. Uh, There's sort of the official theatrical version, and then there's this producer's cut that was not generally available for years. And and now, actually, I actually dialed it up on Amazon Prime, and, you know, it's a perfectly finished cut, and everything, the color timing is a little different, which is sort of weird. The, like, the leaves in the background look greener and less autumnal as as you would say than the theatrical cut so maybe it wasn't totally finished but it's definitely better Vic and it's kind of a shame we talked a little bit before going on mic here you actually didn't get to see the producer's cut I did not get to see the the whole producer's cut I did do some homework I do have a good sense of what the differences are and yeah I think I'm probably sad that I didn't watch the producer's cut although you are I'm sure they're both terrible. Yes, but the producer's cut is decidedly less terrible. I never saw this in the theater, and so maybe that's why I actually saw this film three times before we did this podcast. I saw the producer's <laughs> cut twice in prep for doing this show, and I saw the um, theatrical cut first. The producer's cut just makes a lot more sense. It's more co- more coherent. You get a better overall experience so even though i'm a gore hound and i like the quality kills and i don't necessarily need a tight plot on a slasher movie the theatrical cut is freaking ridiculous man if they'd stuck with the halloween 666 then you go in thinking that satan is in there somewhere and it's just it's like a faint you know they're going the oh you think it's going to be satanic but actually we're steering back to uh season of the witch to introduce some more druids Yes, and I think there are some interesting connections between this film and Halloween 3. 
And I do think there's a good script in there somewhere. The credited writer is somebody I'm not familiar with, Daniel Ferrans, uh, directed, of course, by Joe Chappelle, someone else who is not Dave Chappelle, so um, not terribly familiar with this guy either. Chappelle went on to do a good bit of The Wire and uh, Fringe. If you're going to be a TV director, those are pretty good credits to have. He did some CSI Miami, too. We won't hold that against him. But you you get the sense that there were good people with good intentions dealt really bad cards trying to make something good out of this, and then Bob Weinstein ruined it. Luckily, this is the worst thing that we can um, blame the Weinsteins for. Exactly. <laughs> John, I'm gonna, I just want to stop you there because I, I do feel like this should be a good tradition for us uh, uh, to continue. What, uh, what are you drinking tonight? Well, um, thanks for asking there, Vic. Uh, I started off with a Manhattan kind of in my uh, lead up to the show as I was uh, doing a little mic, mic checking and whatnot and uh, going through my notes, which are voluminous. And now that we're actually recording, I am drinking a Wolf Pup Session IPA. How about you? Session, session IPA, huh? All right. Well, you started with the Manhattan, so I'm not going to make funny. <laughs> Carrie Bradshaw would be proud of you. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got that, and so that's even funnier. I am drinking a uh, uh, a uh, Latitude 33 Honey Hips, mm-hmm. which is a, a delightful but also slightly high alcohol content, as is my preference. So we'll see how this goes as we get into uh, this this silliness. Well, yeah, luckily we can't be sillier than the actual film, so that's it's that's it's true. And I just want to say too, especially sort of for the for the benefit of the listeners, like when I look back, especially on Friday the Thirteenth, some of my favorite episodes, both to record and then to listen back to, are the the really terrible ones. Like I had so much fun recording Jason Takes Manhattan, yeah. for instance, or uh, the final Friday, Jason Jason Goes to Hell. Those are all uh, really fun to record. And so there's a sense in which I knew that this was the the nadir of the series. This was always going to be the one. I mean, we'll see what happens when we get to Halloween Resurrection. But this was always going to be the one that if we were just going to tee off on how ridiculous this series could possibly be, this is the one where I think you really find that. So I've actually been looking forward to this a bit and watching the movie again for the first time in many, many years, because even as a a teenager, I knew how terrible this was and I knew what a letdown it was. As somebody who cared about the Druidian origins of Michael Myers, I watched this and was like, wait, what? That was, this was awful. It it lived up to that. I did not. This, there was no uh, Heaven's Gate revisionism on Halloween Six. It's uh, <laughs> it's just as bad as I remembered it being, and just as bad as the critics say. And and surely, dear listeners, uh, it's just as bad as you think it is too. If you don't, please post on our Facebook page because I would love to hear somebody defend this. The Facebook page, of course, is Darkest Hour Media. We'd love to hear from y'all. And it's not going to be completely like just, you know, shitting on this movie. I think there's some interesting and ambitious aspects to it that I find really intriguing. It's just, you know, execution is kind of where things break down, both on the page uh, from a screenplay uh, perspective and on the screen in terms of what they actually were able to get and edit together, of course, that being one of the big bones of contention with this film. John, you're wrong. Everything in this movie is terrible, including Paul Rudd, which is not something I thought I would ever say. Ooh, 
I'm afraid I do agree with you, and we will get to poor, <laughs> yes, we will get to poor Mr. Paul Rudd's performance in a bit. But it's an ambitious film, because I think on some level this tries to be the sequel that John Carpenter would make. I really think that at this point in time, by 1995, six years after the last one, the filmmakers knew kind of what makes a Carpenter movie a Carpenter movie. And even if they're sort of aping it in some ways, I think that they're trying to emulate and tie back to, as we mentioned earlier, Halloween 3, which Carpenter didn't direct, but is more of a true Carpenter movie than any of the other Halloween sequels. And I think if you compare this to most Carpenter movies, you can see some, uh, you know, I won't, I won't go so far as homage or fan service. It's not even a negative thing. I think they're just really kind of tapping into that that vibe and that mythology. And for me, that's a worthy objective. Like we inject a big dose of Halloween three here. I would say that you could even think that this is an attempt to sew up the entire Halloween franchise, the whole series mythology in a way that Carpenter might do if he was still driving the bus here. Cause I think you might see it as tying into the Carpenter verse in a sense. What do you, what do you think about that? Vic? Am I totally crazy or do you see that at all? I think you're totally crazy. Everything that when we looked at five and said, this is the kind of fan service that people want that yeah. feels organic and that fits with the story that they're telling and advances the story in new and interesting ways here feels even a bit like, uh, in a, I'm going to say in the, in the same sort of negative way, uh, that we got in, in some of the David Gordon green one that it was like, Oh, here's, obvious fan service and the one thing that i i really think would have been good is uh uh if they were going to steal from halloween 3 they should have gotten tom atkins to play dr win that would have been uh that would have been yeah. amazing due respect to the actor i'm gonna look up his name but due respect to the actor who who did play it because i i did see him and immediately go hey it's the it's the guy from uh liar liar yes tom atkins makes everything better when we did the new Halloween, the David Gordon Green movie, I could not lambaste it for some of the things that it lifts from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> because I noticed several of them watching this film. And that made me kind of dislike that movie even a bit more, even though it's, you know, a vastly better piece of filmmaking than this movie. But this movie is part of the greatest hits package that Danny McBride and David Gordon Green went through. I mean, they're deep cuts, but now I, I see it and I'll, I'll reference them as we go along. But there are some things that that movie lifted almost verbatim from this film. Let's get into it. I'm, I'm ready. Let's, let's okay. dive in. Okay. Obviously, you, the listener, probably don't have this plot memorized. So I'm going <laughs> to give you like a basic synopsis here just to help guide you. And we are going to try as we talk about it to orient you within the film, but more or less, here we are six years after Michael Myers last massacre in Haddonfield. This synopsis comes from IMDb written by Ahmet Kozan. So thank you, Ahmet. Um, Jamie Lloyd has a child all of a sudden, six years later, and then she's killed by Michael. Michael is allied with the Cult of Thorn, who both kind of protect him and gave him the Curse of Thorn, and that's why he killed all of his family. Now, the Strode family have moved into the Myers house, and thus Michael will stalk them. Joining forces are Sam Loomis and Tommy Doyle, the boy that Laurie Strode babysat during Michael Myers' first rampage back in 77. 
And they are now out to stop Michael and the cult. Thank you, Ahmet Kozan. (laughs) (laughs) We begin with an opening title sequence that uh, has starring and introducing as a credit for both Paul Rudd, the great Paul Rudd, and the female lead. And they're introduced in this manner in the Halloween font. Now, um, Vic, have you ever seen that credit before? I have not seen starring and introducing. You know, I suppose I haven't because they usually they usually run down a cast and then go and introducing, you know. I guess they're like really wanting to say, oh, yeah, these two are starring in this. Movie. Yeah. Don't forget Paul Stephen Rudd, if uh, if I'm not mistaken. Well, you're correct in the theatrical cut, but in the producer's cut, he's just Paul Rudd. This is a, an interesting little bit of, of Hollywood trivia. I heard a long interview with Jason Priestley, who was talking about sort of his young days in Hollywood. And he he's living in somewhere in the valley in North Hollywood, either living with or friendly with Brad Pitt and Paul Rudd. And they were all just young kind of wannabe actors. And he said that he and Pitt both looked enviously at Paul Rudd because Paul Rudd had starred in a movie uh, <laughs> at this time. And that movie was Halloween 6. Wow. Um, Think yeah. about that. So, Yeah. <laughs> so wherever you are in your life, whoever it is you're looking up at, just remember, it, I mean, granted, everything worked out well for everybody except Jason Priestley. But I don't you know, think Jason Priestley is eating out of garbage cans right now, Vic. That's probably true. I, I did just think that was a, a little interesting tidbit of uh, uh, Hollywood history for you there. I'm sure Brad Pitt was like rewinding and pausing this performance of Paul Rudd over and over, taking notes, like trying to learn the craft. <laughs> <laughs> Study, studying it before he did uh, Thelma and Louise for Ridley yes. Scott. I think he does the little weird head bob in Thelma <laughs> and Louise that Paul Rudd keeps doing in this movie. <laughs> uh... Thank God Paul Rudd found comedy because he's mm. funny in this and he didn't know it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll get more into that, of course, because he, he is the lead in this film. So yeah. it takes place six years after the last one, Revenge of Michael Myers, which we did about nine hours of podcasting on. Yes. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I did note that, again, it's the same date on the calendar when we open. And it, it crossed my mind that nothing happens in these movies except on October 30th and 31st. So right. two days a year, this shit goes down. But can I tell you, this was my experience. So this is how long it's been since I've seen this. I got it off Amazon Prime like you did, uh, the theatrical cut. And when the the card came up that said, you know, Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers, and then it said starring Donald Pleasance. And I went, oh, fuck, I bought the wrong movie. Because Donald Pleasance is dead, right? Like, he's not going to be in this. And I literally, like, paused the movie and went and looked it up and then went, holy shit, Donald Pleasance is in this? Again, not having seen this movie, I referenced in the last podcast we did about the previous film that, oh, we get a peek into Donald Pleasance's house in some, like, you know, deleted scene on the internet. Well, uh, we get that at the beginning of this movie. And for yeah. all I knew at that point, like, that was the end of Donald Pleasance. But we find out that he, his character Loomis, had a stroke and he didn't die at the end of the last film. And that's why he's back here. And I want to say that the performance he gives is is courageous here. I mean, he this was basically he died well months and months and months before the release of this film and any physical frailty that he was experiencing at the end of his life was only subtext in his performance here i mean you do see him as diminished from last time we get the explanation that he had a stroke 
He's visibly older and weaker, but Loomis, the character, and Donald Pleasance, the actor, rise to the occasion here. I mean, you see that he's as sharp and as fierce as ever. I was thinking, fine work as always, Donald. And I, that's that's not a phrase I find myself uttering very often lately. I could not disagree more. Mm. I really felt like he was phoning it in. And again, especially compared to Five, we spent so long talking about how how he created this arc for the character, like almost in spite of sort of all the craziness that was going on around him. And, you know, he was crazy and, and, and you know, having spent his life chasing this evil and, and uh, you know, shouting at this little girl and, and his confrontation, where, you know, at the end – it was it was so emotional and hysterical and like it was this this man's life had led to this fever pitch moment where he was confronting the embodiment of evil after which even though the embodiment of evil simply escaped out of a prison cell he retired to a little you know house somewhere uh and listens to a shock radio dj for some reason <laughs> on friday night I found it utterly unconvincing, and I found myself thinking, my God, the man just needed a paycheck to cover his medical bills. Ooh, ouch. Man, put the gloves back on. <laughs> I'm, look, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I will give the man an Oscar for Halloween 5, but for Halloween 6, he goes down in flames right alongside Paul Rudd and uh, every, everybody else. See, I thought he blew Paul Rudd off the screen in this movie. Well... Yeah, but that's not hard. <laughs> the the little the little girl singing about the uh, uh, the the blood raining down on her blue Paul Rudd off the screen. Well, look, I, I'm not gonna say this this is you know the best Loomis or you know the best uh, Donald Pleasance performance, but I personally did not think that he phoned it in. So right. we we can agree to disagree there. His relationship with Michael, though, is noticeably missing. And again, a lot of these things, I think a lot of your issues, maybe even with the character and the performance, boil down to the script, right? Because there's just nothing that interesting going on. You were talking about kind of Loomis's arc and his character and his obvious, you know, obviously the relationship with, with Michael is such a huge fulcrum of the drama in the series. And that's really in the background in this film. I mean, do you think that might be part of the, the problem? Well, for sure. And it and it steers I mean again the the because of and this is what I mean when I say they were dealt a bad hand. Because they had to dive into the rune on Michael's hand and the man in black and all the the druid stuff. You have to go away from from his relationship with Loomis. That's just where you're where where the story has to go because of what that crazy Frenchman did in the fifth one without thinking about how they were going to answer any questions. It's uh, I, I can't remember we mentioned Lost, but yeah, it feels like a, mm -hmm. you know, this we is, did. this is, this is season six and Damon Lindelof is just throwing his hands up in the air and going, ah, I don't know, put them all in a church and uh, put some crazy shit on the walls. That's pretty much how they wound up here. So I agree with that. But to get back just to the opening, mm -hmm. because this movie goes off the fucking rails, like at the very outset, and then you watch the producer's cut, which I what I'll say about the producer's cut is at least they steer into it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's the like that's the cut that like this is what we have to do. So we're going to do it and we're going to try and we're going to do it as well as we possibly can. Whereas in the theatrical cut, 
they're more like, yeah, no, that doesn't work. So we're going to, we're just going to try and do something else entirely. And, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's almost worse. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have uh, at least the courage of its convictions, but certainly the implication in the theatrical cut and that's made more explicit in the producer's cut is that Michael impregnates Jamie. Yes. Is that the, the, the audio, because the very first sort of audio we hear is, is Jamie saying, Michael, please don't hurt me. I don't remember that from the original cut, but you do hear it later in the, in the producer's cut. Yeah. Very clearly in the producer's cut, we get that Michael has impregnated his niece. And if we remember his niece from the last two films, that's really fucking creepy. And six years later, how old could she be? 16 at this point? Right. I mean, how old could she be? God, I don't know. Yes, but not, not old enough. And, and which is even not even just from the perspective of the, of the character, like of, of all the mythology and of the shape, the horrors that we've projected on Michael Myers, like just the notion of him having sex, making a vinegar face. Like I just, (laughs) it, it ruins it. I immediately was like, wait, what? We're, 10 seconds into the movie and I was already like, I don't like it. I don't think it's immediately apparent in the other version, but yeah, we have to wrestle with this and, and they do kind of treat it in a glancing way. They, they sort of work up to a Vader versus the emperor beat later. And the revelation it's your child, Michael is, I guess it buys them a second where Michael might be reacting to that because apparently he thought that Jamie just got around and he didn't know that it was his child, but we haven't really talked about the child or the, or the cult yet. So let's hold off on that. But it's disturbing, but not in a good way. And and John, I'll I'll just, I just want to say again, having only watched the theatrical cut, because we, we, what we almost immediately get is Jamie giving birth Mm -hmm. and like doctors and everything's cut all to shit. Like you can't tell what's going on, but I thought pretty much from the word go, Oh, Michael, that's Michael's baby. You get that like from the, like the first 10 seconds of this movie. You're like, Oh, Michael rapes Jamie. I I don't even remember that from the, from the theatrical cut. That was clear. I'm telling you, you can hear in the opening of the movie, you hear her say, Michael, please don't hurt me. And that, well, and again, you know that she's been, she's been in here for six years. <laughs> she's having a baby and all you've heard her say is Michael, please don't hurt me. I certainly feel like I, I put two and two together pretty quickly. Okay. Well, that, um, that's quite a wallop in the face of the, the viewer or the fans of the last two films. Uh, but putting it aside for now, um, also, also in the, in the face of, of, of thinking people everywhere. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, yes, yes, that's, that's <laughs> true. And, and a- anti-incest uh, advocates are the world over. So, yeah. um, Donald Pleasance does the voiceover in the uh, producer's cut, which is obviously vastly better than Paul Rudd at this point. And he has a line in there, which I kind of liked. He says he needed to wipe out his entire family. Speaking about Michael, he struck them down at night and always on Halloween. Now, you know, this is expository in a lot of ways. We're trying to set up something that this film is attempting to do, which I actually don't mind in the sense that, you know, as we've done this podcast, we've been sort of musing on 
what's going on here? Like, what are Michael's motivations? Why is he compelled to keep coming back? And I think that it's not a bad thing to try to add a coherent reason for the narrative pattern of each of these stories. I think it's worth doing. Again, whether or not it's successful at all, that's a different question. But I like that the movie is kind of taking that head on. What is compelling Michael to do this? Agreed. And I think we talked about this even with Halloween 2. This is the moment they made the decision that Laurie Strode was actually Michael's sister, which I think was a bad decision when they made it in Halloween 2. This is the path they started on. Yep. You know what I mean? That Michael was trying to kill his family, which then became Michael trying to kill his niece, uh, you know, which drug on for two movies. And now it's Michael trying to kill his niece's baby, who's also his son. That was the that was the path they set. They, they set themselves on when they did that. Those are the questions that you need to answer if you're going to try and pull this franchise together in a in a coherent, meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely using the same canon established in Halloween 2 here, which, of course, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride kind of famously at this point realize is unwieldy and jettison for their remake. But And then, you know, even um, H2O jettisons a ton of this stuff. But this is the last movie where we're really, you can connect the dots all the way back to the, the first movie and these key plot elements that the second movie introduced, which, of course, are Laurie's real relationship with Michael. Yeah. Okay, so uh, in this open, we get what I thought was a somewhat interesting intersection of imagery in that we have medical doctors in hospital garb rushing this wailing about to give birth Jamie down a hallway, but the hallway is stone and there's secret looking chambers and candles. And, you know, we get this sort of cult and medicine crash together. That, that is somewhat interesting, if nothing else. Agreed. Yeah. Jamie here is unrecognizable though. Obviously they recast her. She's still brunette and Caucasian. She's not Filipino, I guess, but this actress doesn't strongly evoke Daniel Harris to me. And I guess that's hard to do uh, six years later, unless you have the original actress back in the role. I thought this new Jamie had kind of a Lori Petty thing going on. Do you, are you with me? I guess I can see that. I mean, I mostly just thought she was bad. Like mm-hmm. she was, she was not, I mean, it, we, we talked a lot in five about how much the performances kind of lifted that movie above what it could have been. And here, I feel like a lot of the performances dragged it down. And this was one of them because it's a, a very key performance in terms of setting up the story and caring about these things and, and making, forging a connection to all the story that's come before it. And yeah, I, she didn't look like her. Her her performance wasn't very good. It, if it, it was it, Danielle Harris, Vic, do you think how much would that have elevated this? It would have diminished Danielle Harris in my eyes. I think intrinsically it would have been more compelling if we're, we're watching that same girl uh, go through. I mean, she doesn't lack for screen time, especially again in the producer's cut. So, like, her story, she gets a story within this movie, and her story comes to an end. So that has to be poignant if you if you care about the character. And I think that that actress did a great job of making us care about the character. Agreed. 
again, like if you're going to make these choices, like you kind of have to steer into them. Like it would have made the whole notion of Michael incestuously raping his niece that much more queasy and awful. Oh, yeah. And so in that way, yeah, it would have it would have gotten more of an emotional reaction out of me, whereas this sort of wooden performance pulled me out of it emotionally. So I, I was joking earlier, but I, I, you know, I sort of applaud Daniel Harris for turning this down. Well, um, she didn't turn it down. I mean, I read uh, the story and basically, right? yeah, what the situation was, as she put it, she wasn't asking for a ton of money. But they basically wanted to pay her scale. And it came down to, well, I don't care if you were in two of these movies before. You're in this movie for two days. Like, your shooting days are two days. And we're going to pay you appropriately. And she was just, you know, horrified and, you know, understandably offended by that. They gave her no credibility at all. It was just like this part, you know, you have five scenes. This is what you're getting paid. Period. It was a very insulting deal. All right. It, it, it would have been better if she'd been in it. Uh, Danielle Harris makes everything better when she's in it. Yeah. But it would not have rescued the movie. But it would have gotten it off on a slightly better foot than it gets off on. That said, I will say this. I agree that I, I like the juxtaposition of the the doctors and the, the sort of cult imagery in the caves and the robes and shit. And her escape is actually mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And the 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 doctor that lets her out and stuff, I mean, that's that all works in, in a sort of a vaguely believable sense, at least in the context of the movie. I will say, again, as the as the uh, uh designated parent that the notion of a, a mother really even walking that soon after having baby is is pretty crazy. And the baby starting here, but going on through the next uh, five scenes and really through the rest of the movie, the baby is the best behaved, like least (laughs) crime. Like it's, I feel like they just use the doll from American sniper because (laughs) I, the notion that a baby could sit in a cabinet for, uh, you know, 12 hours and, and not have anybody notice is astonishing. Newborn babies need to eat like every 45 minutes. Thank you for that perspective, Vic. And uh, Thank I'm, you. I'm Thank blessed you. to not have that perspective just yet, but this is, this is, this has been your fatherhood in horror movies. And, <laughs> but uh, from Dr. Vikram Wheat. basic, uh, yes, basic plausibility issues from anyone who's had a newborn, but I want to backtrack a bit. This woman, you called her a doctor, and, I, and that makes me feel like a sexist prick because I kind of thought <laughs> that was a nurse. <laughs> you, need to, you need to re-examine your gender bias. Yes, huh? yes. I, I need to have a long talk with myself. But she she suddenly shows up in the recovery room. All of this feels like just minutes after, as you said, Jamie had birth, and she says, come with me if you want to save your baby in kind of a terminatory moment. And they run off, and I guess they both know, or at least Jamie knows, that Michael is apparently on his way. They're running around in this industrial plant type place, Mm -hmm. underground. And we get this beat where the nurse is tired, and she's going to sacrifice herself to save Jamie and the baby, because she's too tired to go with them. And then suddenly the nurse hears a sound and hopefully calls out, Jamie? You know, I talked about this being the nadir of the series, like, I'm going to say, you know, sort of, Jason uh, Jason takes Manhattan and mm-hmm. Jason goes to hell. But I remember bringing up Jason goes to hell is the first one that starts where they just like don't even address 
what happened at the end of Jason Takes Manhattan. It's just Jason's just back and like just a fact of life. And this feels like they're like, let's just get to Michael Myers chasing uh, Jamie down a hallway. Like we don't really, we don't really need to, we don't really need to set this up. Like let's just, uh, let's just go. Well, we kind you know? of, what I do think is interesting that Michael has a place in this world. Like he's not an interloper here. He kind of belongs with the cult. And I think mm-hmm. that's the one thing that's different about Michael's relationship to everyone else in this movie. I mean, generally, I think this is probably the definitely not probably the most boring Michael Myers in the whole series. But yeah. like, it's interesting that the cult is cool with him and he's got the run of the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a, he, you know, he's just, he's just wandering around, like waiting for something to happen so he can stalk somebody down a dark hallway. He doesn't really have to escape from a mental hospital. Like he just, he just walks well, out. That's a relief, know. Vic. That is a relief. Yeah. At least we don't have to break him out of another goddamn uh, mental hospital. <laughs> <laughs> However, go. we do have a spike sticking out of the wall for no reason. Yeah. Seriously. If you were uh, in charge of some sort of catacomb <laughs> that you were going to use to house Michael Myers, like, wouldn't you just keep spikes sort of sporadically around for exactly this situation? He doesn't have to jam his thumb through her forehead. There's a <laughs> spike there. That is as lazy as writing gets. It, it yeah. really is. Now, I will say this. It's reasonably effective in its execution as a kill. I mean, this is a movie with pretty lame kills for the most part. Um, But when we get this beat, it it does kind of reconnect us with Michael. And it shows, oh yeah, this is Michael. He's back. This is kind of, um, it sets the tone for the performances that we remember about him. He, he does the head tilt as he sticks this nurse on the spike, the kindly nurse, and then looks at her as she's, you know, expiring. That's Michael there. I mean, we recognize him. It's nothing new, but it reminds us of his menace. And in sort of reverse logic, it's a hero beat for, for a serial killer. In filmic terms, it's like, oh shit, yeah, this is, this is the bad guy. This is, this is Michael Myers. Agreed, but it is, again... It's that kind of shameless fan service of like, remember, remember when Michael does this, huh? The head tilt thing. He does it again later. I made a note of that too, mm-hmm. which, which at least makes slightly more sense. But, uh, but I agree. It is. I, I had the same thing of like, you know, as a horror fan, as somebody who's been through so much of this franchise, you do kind of breathe this sigh of like, okay, all right. It's still a Halloween movie. <laughs> like yeah. it's not gonna it's not gonna descend into uh the vich well that would have been welcome but um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean it, it 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 does kind of set the tone and uh, this michael if we're talking about this michael we keep seeing him from behind later in the film and his mask the hair is like sticking out in this weird like straight like spiky way that kind of it really just looks like you're you're shooting over the shoulder of a muppet yep nope, that's spot on john it's a it's a the hair is doing weird things and it creates especially because you're creating this silhouette in the foreground it creates a really weird silhouette it's a strange choice he's a pro forma michael in in what he does in in his kills and and then he has this 
kind of lame silhouette on top of it. I guess it's not quite as lame as the weird shoulder pads version that we had in, what was that, 4? <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's a not interesting, Michael. And of course, you know, spoiler, we don't do anything interesting with his psychology in this movie. So he hangs the, the nurse up on a spike, and the music, uh, at least in the producer's cut, is all Carpenter classic. Uh, Alan Howarth, of course, is the guy who picked up the, the baton for uh, John Carpenter, musically speaking here, and uh, through most of the series. And there's some good stuff here, at least in the producer's cut, um, in terms of the, the use of the classic motifs of the original films. And they, I think they even edited it together well with the with the scenes of suspense. They use it in a very Carpenter-like manner, using the existing Halloween themes that are familiar but comforting, I guess, in how they invest sequences that are probably at best averagely directed in terms of suspense with some tension. So, well, John, John, I've I've got to point out that when you juxtapose the theatrical cut from the producer's cut. A lot of the sort of ambient use of the music where I feel like it plays best in the producer's cut, they used that, you know, those kind of iterations of the Carpenter score in the theatrical cut. They used Alice in Chains. No, it's which, not Alice in Chains. I wish it was Alice in Chains. Are you sure? Hang on. I'm going to Google this while we speak. It was a band I, that I was not aware of. They have like six or seven tracks from the same band that you know mike would probably be able to tell us a lot more about brother kane is the is the band according to wikipedia. holy shit it's are you sure that's what wikipedia wow. is telling me because i actually wrote not alice in chains <laughs> ah yes well so, you, you would be correct however there is an alice in chains connection here no 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 not like not like oh it's not alice in chains but like no not <laughs> alice in chains oh you're too good for this right. <laughs> oh i see yes yes huh. they 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 did not profane their reputation by yeah. participating in this film but exactly. mariah o'brien who plays beth the obligatory hot girl of this film is the model in the dirt album by alice in chains now that is the kind of thing you're just not going to get on any of the podcast, folks. <laughs> Thank you, John Evans. You are welcome, sir. So, any in any event, moving on, um, we get the uh, death of this nurse who's trying to help Danielle Harris's character, who she's sadly not getting to play. Um, and then Jamie, the new Jamie, is uh, racing off into a rainy night and she's got her baby, and she falls, and I guess the baby doesn't get smushed under her because she picks herself up. She steals a truck, and some drunk douchebag in a poncho sees uh, Jamie, and I guess it's his truck. And she's trying to warn him in, in mime during the rainstorm because she guess, I guess we, she sees Michael coming up on this dude, rolling up on him. But um, he can't hear her because of the rain, and she doesn't roll down the window or anything like that, even though he left the keys in the truck. So he gets his head twisted around, and this kill is reasonably effective in both versions. We get some spines sticking out from... Oh, hey, there's the cat feeder, everybody. Hey, all right, the suspense has been killing me. Thank God. The gun on the mantelpiece has been fired. There you go. And actually, I was it's good because I was looking for a point to interject because I, I made a note of something here. Uh, that goes right along with 
I remember in Halloween three we talked about the fact like there's just a lot of hobos in in slasher movies like <laughs> that are just sort of cannon fodder. I also noticed that every chain link fence has a corner rolled up. You know, <laughs> you would think that if you were if you were the the powerful uh, uh, druidic cult that can that can pull together doctors and nurses and medical personnel all in this giant underground facility that you might make sure that your fence wasn't rolled up so that every Tom, Dick and Harry can just come in and out of there, especially as you have the uh, embodiment of, of evil, evil on two legs, <laughs> uh, you know, just underground. Like maybe you want to keep this, somebody monitoring the perimeter or something, but no, there's just a, there's just a corner of the fence rolled up. And so she and the baby slip out. That's uh, one thing that this facility is lacking is security. That's, yeah. that's for sure. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, I guess you've got Michael Myers. If he's not trying to leave, maybe you're not really that worried. Uh, well, uh, yeah, he's basically on the payroll. I mean, he's, he's Darth Vader to the uh, man in black's emperor, man. So he, he takes Michael, care of that. Michael Myers, home security. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a jumpsuit. Do you, do you have a psychopath in your house? <laughs> He's very uh, vigilant. Yeah. Um, Always on what, duty. What, what, what is the saying goes, uh, uh, better to have the, the camel inside your tent pissing out, right? Um, as opposed to outside your tent pissing in. See? No? That's, uh, that, that saying will get a lot less obscure now that our listeners are going to start uh, sharing it on a regular basis. Outstanding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyways, but yeah, so that was, that, that to me was one of the like, Oh, like, I don't know. It just, it's the, it, the, those little things when you're telling this story are the things, every one of those little moments that pulls you out of the movie and they just compound over the course of this to make it seem sillier and sillier. Nevertheless. Well, we're about to have a very silly scene here as we move All right, forward. let's get, let's get to it. And with that in mind. Outstanding. Beer number two after my Gotta delicious get Manhattan. Okay. I, uh, I I I switched to a uh, scotch. I can't quite get my ice cubes to clink, but mm. uh, they're clinking. They're clinking, Vic. There you go. Yep, that's uh, right. that's podcasting gold right there. You know that you know the podcast is about to get good. Oh yeah. So we we meet um, this little boy named Danny now. Um, he's about six years old. Uh, what do you think, Vic? Did we do we? Do you have a clear sense of it? Who's Danny? <laughs> well, this character was named after Danny Torrance, and apparently he is potentially the next Michael Myers. Danny sees this man in black who we introduced in the last film. And by the way, when you were talking about Lost and J.J. Abrams and being obligated to make shit work that somebody just kind of randomly set up without you know, previously without knowing where it was going to go. This film chooses the absolute last things that you would want to carry over into the next movie. And they feel like, well, shit, I guess we got to, you know, we got to keep that even though they have no idea what to do with it. And then jettisons like all kinds of much more interesting and promising things that they could have used in this film. No, the man in black is back. And now he's kind of talking to this little kid and trying to motivate him to join Team Thorn Cult. 
and kill for him, Danny, kill for him. Him meaning Michael. This is one of those movies where the characters are named after uh, other characters in movies, and Danny's grandparents are named Deborah and John, which are Deborah and John Carpenter. Deborah Hill and John Carpenter oh. are who they're named after. But Kara, who I don't know who she's named after, is Danny's mom, and she's the female lead of the film and the co-lead with the great Paul Rudd. She comes in to comfort Danny after this, you know, terrifying run-in with the man in black. She does a cute little mantra for Danny in the producer's cut, which uh, Vic was deprived of enjoying. And the audience really has no idea who these people are at this point, like how they would yeah. tie into the plot. But we introduced the idea of this radio show that everyone in the world is listening to. <laughs> Back talk with Barry Sims. Fucking Barry Sims, dude. <laughs> that guy. One of the more obnoxious characters in the history of uh, slasher films. He's live from the top of the Sears Tower in Chicago. And, and enjoyed not just by teenagers, but also by debilitated geriatric uh, uh, psychiatrists. Yes, yes. Everyone yeah. in the world listens to him to the point that the bus station is just cranking the the Barry Sims show through yes. their PA system. So we learned yep. from this initial broadcast that Haddonfield banned Halloween back in 1989 after the last movie. So it's been six years of no Michael and all quiet on the Midwestern front. Well, that's a that's a good literary reference, John. I'm I'm impressed. That's one of the the really interesting ideas that they kept trying to pull into four and five that they might ban Halloween. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of, of sort of interesting and thoughtful kind of sociological things you could do with that and how it affects this town because Haddonfield is or should be one of the characters in these stories. And they do absolutely nothing. I mean, I know we get like yeah. kind of the first Halloween and Barry Sims and blah, blah, blah. They do nothing interesting with it. No, they don't. They don't. Yeah. But um, Kara does see Danny draw the thorn symbol, which they introduced in the last movie. And which is telling us that it's working on Danny's mind. I do think that the similarity or the parallel between Danny at whatever age he is and Jamie at the age she was when she went loco and stabbed her, not her mom, but, you know, her surrogate mother, I think that's that's like a, a salient parallel here, right? She almost went down a dark road, unbeknownst to the audience. Maybe it was the Thorn cult that were pulling Jamie down this road that, that it's now supposedly, it's Danny's turn to take on that mantle. With Jamie, it was interesting. Donald Pleasance's reaction to her standing there with the clown mask after she stabbed her adoptive mother and, and, and all this kind of stuff like that was really effective. Um, here it's like, here's a little boy who's maybe going to be a murderer. You remember the first Halloween? Again, it feels more like perfunctory fan service. Again, think about it this way. They're doing it at the beginning of the movie instead of introducing us to this kid and building it up and, and, and having it pay off in some way at the end of the movie, even if they kind of screwed it up in the, you know, between four and five, at least four, I feel like has a really compelling ending because they touched on that element of it and made it believable and made it a character that we were invested in here it's you know danny danny nobody uh, living in a house that we don't know anything about we get all that stuff later but so out of the gate you're just like who I don't, who oh, cares yeah. 
the film does not do a great job of introducing characters. And this whole Danny storyline is pretty much a dud. So um, a a woman calls in to this radio show. I mean, we get at least 20 minutes of this movie. It's about who's calling in to talk to Barry Sims. (laughs) (laughs) But I do kind of, I'm amused by this. And she's talking about the untamed, uninhibited Michael Myers being everything she ever wanted in a man. And it's juxtaposed cinematically with Kara stripping. And I think, you know, she's just in her, in her, in her bedroom, you know, like Mm -hmm. mundane, um, for whatever reason, as you do in a horror movie, just taking your clothes off. But there's a fun text slash subtext going on here. But what exactly the filmmakers want us to do with it? I don't know. Is it really saying something? But the radio caller is talking about, like, she's not interested in the real serial killers, you know, Dahmer and Bundy and, and so on that Barry lists but she wants to know what's behind Michael Myers' mask. And I feel like this is like a scene you don't get in these movies, but you would in real life. And I think it's it's fun. She floats the theory that Michael just needs a good partner, which is worth considering even if the movie never does, and none of these movies do. And it's interesting watching Kara's face, as she, or Kara, as she listens to all of this. There's kind of a wistful... Um, lonely quality to her performance here. The the juxtaposition that I drew is with Michael's sister, sort of on the night that that she gets killed. Because Kara is, if I if my genealogical tree is correct, she is Mike. She is Lori's, and therefore Michael's cousin, right? Dude, her, if if you got that information, you're one up on me. I have no idea what her relationship is. What her dad, her mom says something like. Your brother could never sell this house, and that's why you moved in. Meaning, like, um, the brother being the realtor who was Lori's dad? Lori's dad, exactly, which would make Kara and Lori and therefore Michael cousins. But so trying to draw some juxtaposition between girls stripping late at night. And again, it's when you talk about that, yeah, like that – the notion of the the women in the world who are sexually aroused by Michael Myers, like that's out of natural born killers. Like, again, that's you're hinting at something that's maybe kind of interesting because we always come back to with Michael, at least especially in the uh, certainly in the first movie and, and a bit in the second one, that his relationship to women and kind of sexuality and stuff gives this weird undercurrent to his murderous impulses that is basically fallen by the wayside. And so here they introduce it in this, I agree, this kind of this kind of interesting way, especially if you're going to juxtapose it with where once he murdered his sister who was taking off her clothes in a bedroom on a dark night, you know, right around Halloween, with his cousin taking off her clothes in a dark bedroom right around Halloween night. And for all we know, it might even be the same room, right? Yes, exactly. Oh, that's funny. See, I didn't even mm. put that together. I didn't either. But it goes nowhere and it does nothing. Ultimately, we're just shoehorning some cheesecake into the movie, but they scripted this. We have this woman calling into a radio show, and, and, and yeah. you know, they were playing with ideas about like how how the world might view someone like Michael. And as we all know, like if you kill a bunch of people and end up on death row, there will be women who are sexually uh, mesmerized by you and might even, Ab- you know, romantically want to like actually have a relationship with you. Absolutely. Charles yeah. Manson was married. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's tapping into something we all know is real and applying it to this fictional character. And there's something kind of interesting about that. 
even more so with Michael Myers because of the blankness of his mask. We've talked about part of the reason that he's such an effective uh, slasher is because you are able to project all these, you know, he's this sort of blank slate that we can project all of our fears and everything else on. So you could totally see how somebody could project whatever their sexual proclivities were onto that same blank slate. It is an interesting idea um, that doesn't go anywhere. The, the, my, my cat, Savannah, has joined the program. Uh, I don't know if you can hear her. Oh, yeah. the, again, on, on, the, on, the new, on the new microphones, I, I, I directionally, I'll, I'll try and point it toward her just to make sure if she has any input, she, she's able to contribute. Oh, when she says, Ryan, Ryan, <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> this, that, this, is, that is sometimes what my cat sounds like she's saying. There's and, a serial killer on death row named Ryan who Savannah has a desperate crush on. So, so anyway. speaking of crazy people, um, Kara spots Tommy at his window. Tommy Doyle, everybody, who, of course, is uh, played by Paul Rudd here. And Tommy is the little boy who survived that first babysitting nightmare that uh, Laurie Strode navigated successfully in the first Halloween. He's grown up now, and he's at his window across the street, aiming a camera at at the Myers house. And he knows he's busted when Kara spots him, but he doesn't move. She's in her bra and panties, so he seems pretty creepy, but we'll we'll later learn that he has this camera trained on that house for heroic reasons. And truly the character that we wanted to see come back. That's been the lingering yeah. question after five movies is, whatever happened to Tommy Doyle? Well, there was uh, all those uh, audience surveys and, and things, like all this data just like represented the, the, the groundswell of interest in the Tommy Doyle character. So they had to make the fans happy. Dick. Yeah, exactly. He could, he could have had some like uh, Tarantula Man posters on his wall or something. Now, that would have been a nice uh, be tie it all together thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, he doesn't have that on his walls anymore. It's just clippings from newspapers documenting the uh, original crimes in a very amateurish fashion. A second after this scene, he's calling into that radio show and he gets right on the air too. And I do find it interesting that he, he plays more as crazy Ralph in the Friday the 13th films than a hero in this beat. <laughs> I, I feel like you're, there, there are a lot of parallels to Friday the 13th in this that we oh, didn't yeah. have in a lot of the previous films. Um, so true. And yes. Exactly. He's many iterations, including the brother character from the Friday the 13th reboot. I mean, you know, there's Mm -hmm. always somebody who's haunted by the thing that Jason did to them. Creighton Duke, he's the guy who knows the secrets, who's learned the mystical mystery behind why this killer can't be killed. Well, it's both in the reboot and uh, the final chapter, I believe. Like, there's the, the, the brother of one of the girls who died in, in two or three who who shows up who's who's been camping in the woods so like this is a, a motif throughout the friday series the the guy yeah. who knows what's up and is out for revenge kind of a thing the survivor and another i i totally agree with you Vic. like one of my notes that i wanted to touch on was that this film is the first of these sequels that i i really clearly think is influenced by the friday the 13th movies the early ones, especially like we get a whole boyfriend, girlfriend shower thing later on that feels right out of part four. And like several times we're in a house with corpses, but nobody knows it yet. 
And it, it all, like, there's a lot of beats that are constructed from the early Friday the 13th playbook. Well, for decades, Friday the 13th was playing catch-up to Halloween, right? Yep. Like, that was, Halloween was the originator. It was, it is, in many ways, the kind of highbrow version of the slasher film. It has psychological complexity. It's, again, we've talked about the performances are good. There's there's clearly some thought put into uh, the the stories that they're telling and 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 how to make the scares work. There's not an overabundance of cats jumping out at people and that kind of <laughs> bullshit. Love the Friday the Thirteenth movies. That was so much fun to go through that with you guys. But these movies were doing something different. Yeah. And in Halloween Six, they're they're not. <laughs> they're not. They're yeah. not. They're not. They're not really doing something different. But it's they're, funny because like, where was Friday the Thirteenth by 90, 1995? I mean, like they were almost saying, "Well, Friday the Thirteenth sucks now, so we're going to reconnect to when you loved it." You know, the early eighties. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So Tommy does this crazy Ralph thing where he's like, soon, very soon, Michael will come home to kill again. And we, we learned that because it's 1995, he has a computer program called Project Michael Myers, and it's password protected, and it has an image of Michael's mask on it, and he really loves candles. And we'll come to learn that everyone in this movie really loves to decorate a room with 30 or 40 candles. That's a, like a common movie trope in general that every time I see it, it's like, you look at like a like a sex scene and you're just like, God, that's such a fire hazard. Oh, yeah. And it, it would take forever to burn the to light. By the time you lit all the candles, the first one would be burned down. It's silly. But yes, lots and lots of candles. One of those the, little little candles that everyone actually has, like we should see more of those. You know what I'm yeah, talking tea, about? Tea lights. Yeah. The little tea lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, nobody has, nobody has that in a movie. Druids, druids don't do tea lights. No, they're always these giant gothic like melty 12-inch candles. Yes. So uh, we cut away from that back to uh, poor Jamie, and she's driving that dead guy's pickup truck, and she still decides that she needs to stop at a bus station. Um, I think the filmmakers should have shown in one of these uh, cuts uh, maybe a low gas gauge or something that would motivate her to do that. I don't know. She gets back in the truck later, and it drives, so I guess it still has gas in it. I'm not clear, Vic, on why she feels the need to stop at this bus station instead of just driving off as far as she can fucking go. I could bullshit an excuse of like, mm-hmm. well, I, after giving birth and, and the, you want help the first place you can get to, but you can't, Jamie knows that that's a dumb idea. And especially upon realizing that the bus station is both empty and eerily lit, she would immediately get back in the, like, yeah, no, none of it makes sense. No, not, not at all. Not at not all. At all. But um, we're cutting in between the bus station and more people listening to the same broadcast that Jamie's listening to at the bus station because everybody's listening to Barry Sims. He's yeah. like he's like MASH and whatever other cultural touchstones everyone was tuned into no matter what. The, the Howard Stern of Hattonfield. Oh, he's kind of a cross between Howard Stern and Tom Likas, if you are familiar with that. <laughs> I, I am familiar with Tom Likas. <laughs> Oh, I think God. it's a clear mashup of those two. Um, wait, wait, his heyday I, was I, at this period. I just have to say, in my defense, when I was in college, I delivered pizzas on the weekends for my brother. And I was in the car a lot, and I listened to a lot of talk radio. And that is why I know who Tom Likas is. I just feel like that's oh, – I, yeah. I feel like I need to – I need to put some context around that. Well, hey, kids, we didn't have satellite radio in the 90s, and, you know, we barely had CD players. So you did did listen to to radio. 
much less learned and uh, amusing drunks on podcasts. So, you know. <laughs> yes. I, I know that if we had had this type of product that you and I are putting out when we were teens, uh, we would have never put on Tom Likas. I'll promise you that. I would still be delivering pizzas. That is- <laughs> Just so you didn't miss an episode. So uh, we introduced Loomis as we're going to get him in this film here because he's listening to the broadcast and he's got thick bifocals now and he looks like an owl and not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, Sam Loomis looks old at this stage. And I think it serves the narrative, but you know, it it is what it is. And suddenly this guy, Wynn, shows up unannounced at at Loomis's house. Now, um, really, really... uh, watchful super fans would recognize that this guy had a scene in the original Halloween and he is the, I don't think it's the same actor, but he's the administrator of the asylum where Loomis worked. He shows up. He hasn't seen Loomis in a while. Loomis doesn't know why he's there. We don't either. Mitchell Ryan is the, the actor's name and he was also in lethal weapon. He was general McAllister, the guy that uh, Danny Glover kills you know, does the does the neck roll and then shoots him uh, uh, while playing chicken with a car. You've seen this guy. If he looks familiar, you've probably seen him before. He does a credible job. You know, he's he, he's not terrible. Handed a bad set of cards because yeah. he's supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be a big reveal when we find out who he is. And I'm not going to spoil that just now, but it's supposed to be a big reveal. And if he'd had, I don't know, if there'd just been anything else again, if they'd put any thought into setting any of this up in uh, uh the previous movies maybe it would have had some impact but he's got a he's got a great movie voice and uh yeah he's a a, a worthy foil for uh donald pleasant he's sort of his best bud at this point in the film and they toast and loomis says old friends and the guy offers him his job and loomis is like you should know it's not wise to play halloween pranks on me I kind of like that line, Vic. I'm sorry. I it's it, it's a good line, and your impression's gotten good. Can I tell you? I this is a this is a slight detour, and I swear I'm going to keep this short. But I had a thought while I was watching this, which is because you remember the whole thing in that is they they they're having the argument about how uh, from the first one when he's arguing with the head of the hospital. Well, you know, he shouldn't even know how to drive a car. And my, and and Donald Pleasant says, "Well, he, he was doing a very good job last night, right?" <laughs> Yeah. What occurred to me is you cut to later in the movie and one of the friends yells, hey, speed kills, jerk. And like the car like slams to a stop. And I thought, what if Michael just doesn't know how to use the brakes? Like, did he <laughs> did he mean for that to be like a creepy, like, you know, like a threatening uh, skid? Or was it just, a, you know, is it just that, that he's unfamiliar with driving and he didn't realize how sensitive the brakes were? On now, a- Vic, we have talked about Michael's driving capabilities many times on this podcast. And I think we can agree that he's not ready for the Daytona 500 by any means, you know? Yeah, like- <laughs> that's what I mean. I, I just say, I, it, all of a sudden, watching that, watching the, this scene in particular, all of a sudden, I started thinking about that, and I put all that together, and I went, you know, maybe we misinterpreted that scene from the first movie. Yeah. He's he's a poor driver. He he crashes his car in four, <laughs> I think, into or maybe it was five, yeah, into a tree, like, yeah. for almost no reason at all. He's lucky to get out of that one. But, yeah, I don't think he'd be a good Uber driver if, if it doesn't work out being a cult uh, stoolie. That said, he wouldn't talk too much. 
I don't think he'd offer you a bottle of water, but he definitely would not talk your ear off. That's true. There you go. I'd so, probably give him right. four stars. But we're going to catch up to Michael's driving coming yes. up very shortly. Yes. So ah. before we get there, um, we learn that Loomis has written a book about his experiences with Michael, and he says, I've buried the ghosts. So um, I guess at this point he's reached a kind of closure that, that tells us, and apparently ghosts can be buried. Who knew? This has no connection to the character of Loomis that we've set up up to this point. This all seems completely disconnected and, and bizarre. He has been gone, Michael, right? So, But he's still out there. Like, they don't even know where he is. Like, the idea that the guy who gave himself a stroke trying to kill right. him, and then the guy, the guy disappears, and he's just like, well, I guess it's time to write my memoirs. Like, he's like fucking Bilbo Baggins at the beginning of uh, Lord of the Rings. In this movie, the idea is that uh, they all died in an explosion or something, and maybe that first Halloween, the year after that, Loomis is like already, and then he's like, "Oh, oh, okay, um, October thirtieth, uh, no Michael." All right, well that's cool, and then it happens um, the second year, and he's like, "Okay, okay, well maybe this is maybe this is the year," and then it doesn't, and so we're six years later, Vic. I mean, by now maybe he's like, "Oh, I don't know," you know, Michael hasn't come back so far. Look, he could at least be addicted to some kind of pills or something <laughs> like, I mean, again, think about, think about what they did with Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode in the newest, uh, the newest yes. reboot. Like she was guzzling whiskey in a parking lot 40 years after he killed two of her friends. And, and I think I made the point very clearly that I thought that was ridiculous. Yes. And this is ridiculous in the opposite direction. Yeah. All right. All right. That's that's fair. <laughs> yeah. So Jamie calls in to the Barry Sims show and he's she says that Michael's back or he's coming back or and I think she uses the word they in there and everyone listening and by that I mean Loomis and Wynn and Tommy they're all listening and they realize that this caller is important before she even brings up Michael Myers. They're all kind of experiencing the dawning realization that this this is all legit and something's happening. And Loomis pulls out a pistol and he's ready to go. And he's he's I guess that was enough to bring him out of retirement. Well, she calls out. She asks for Do for Doctor Loomis. Dr. She does. Loomis, are you out there? But I'm also again. She goes in there. She calls nine one one. She gets on put on hold or something. And then like her next instinct is to call the fucking radio show. It's just bad writing. Well, like how does she get all these quarters to like feed the payphone? I mean, I guess maybe like that the 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 guy with the poncho had like all these quarters in his truck. But if her goal upon stopping the bus station is to get help, so she gets out, she tries to call nine one one, doesn't work. How is her next step not to get back in the fucking truck? Instead, she calls a radio station. She doesn't even ask the person who answers the radio station to call nine one one. I do she, kind of like that she has this relationship with Doctor Loomis. And she uses this means that this it's very dated, but the idea like of a radio show that everyone's listening to, and this is going to be how she sends her message. It's corny, but at least it's dramatic. I don't know. I shouldn't make, I, I shouldn't apologize for this. <laughs> <laughs> again, I, if you could motivate it, it would make sense. But again, I, that she doesn't either a ask the call screener, can you please call 911? I've been kidnapped for the last six years. Oh, that's funny. Have, You're right. A, There's no call screener in this universe. <laughs> no. She just goes, she goes right onto the air. Uh, and um, uh, and we discover later, by the way, 
because I, I found this particularly absurd that uh, uh, Tommy is recording everything on a reel-to-reel tape recorder. He's listening to yeah, very <laughs> the shock jock and recording everything just in case something like this should happen. Yeah, in a few um, minutes, she, he plays it back and he hears like a, a bus announcement and that's how he knows yeah. where she is. And Which I'm pretty sure is where they got the idea for that scene in The Fugitive. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not That's not true at all. She calls in, she does the whole thing, and then she proceeds to take the baby down the stairs into the women's room. Is it the oh. women's room? Because I'm I'm confused. All right, so there's this giant spacious bathroom in this yep. um in this facility, in this bus station. And um we never see another soul walk into this place other than Tommy later. I guess he just knows to go in the ladies' room. He finds the baby that she stashes in a cupboard. But well, he's, he's following the the blood trail. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll give it props for that. All right. Yeah. So it did – there was a, a, a trail of, of breadcrumbs. So while she's uh, creating that uh, trail of breadcrumbs, the power is out. That's when she knows that Michael is here. She actually glimpses him in the stairwell, and she's going to hide in a stall. And this is something that David Gordon Green's 2018 movie stole. Because we've got Michael checking bathroom stalls one by one. And the new one lifted this outright. He's got the burned hands from Halloween 2. He's knocking one door open uh, after another. By the way, Loomis got plastic surgery to get rid of his scars, this movie uh, establishes. So it's hard to exactly discern what Jamie's plan was in hiding in in this stall because... We reveal ultimately as Michael opens the last door that uh, she left via this window behind the toilet. So why is she hiding at the window if she's ultimately just going to leave via the window? Because she saw Michael in the stairwell. Why didn't she just get the fuck out of Dodge? But it's still kind of a resourceful beat for Jamie because she drives off again. And suddenly Michael has a van and he's harassing her. And yeah, he's driving Again, it begs the question, maybe she just should have kept driving instead of stopping at that bus station. So she crashes into this farm and she takes out a bunch of pumpkins, which is kind of a ha-ha moment, I have to admit. It's a rainy night. She's in pain. She's limited by having just given birth. She's limping. She hides in a barn. Kind of plays to me, Vic, like she's sort of giving up, though, really. And Michael gets the jump on her, and it's way, way too easy. And I will agree, finally, as far as, like, the the new cut, the theatrical cut being better than the producer's cut, that they needed to change this kill. Suddenly she turns around, and and she's getting stabbed. But she says, you can't have the baby. And it's basically like she planned the sacrifice. The 16-year-old girl, at, at most, planned to die this way, to leave him off here when she left the baby back at the bus station. And I guess she kind of knew that it was going to go down this way, ultimately. So the barn feels like a rehash of Halloween 5, because we just did that. Like, you couldn't mm-hmm. think of another, you couldn't think of a, another better location to do, because you're going to, this is it. Like, this is one of your scare scenes. You're going to try and drum up some suspense. And then you have these beats where there are flashes when she's in the barn. She's bleeding, you know, does she and she thinks she sees Michael, but does she really see him or is it in her head? Which, again, is a trope that they used really effectively with her character in part four. Remember, she's having dreams about him and she kind of can't tell what's real and what's not. And so when she actually sees him 
at the costume shop, it's a really effective scene because she thinks that it's just in her head and he's actually there. Because it's been two movies since then, they do nothing to to play that up or nothing to establish any of that. And so then the scene just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, we also ditch the whole psychic connection between them entirely in this film. Yeah. It's basically kind of retconned out that they have this link. And that, I think, is one of the one of the worst decisions that this movie makes. In that, like, that was the main supernatural element up until now. And this film, more or less, doubles down on and commits to the idea of a supernatural element. But that is dropped. It could have been powerful because we have this relationship between them. And we've seen this history. And it would be interesting if it's like he reaches the point where he just kills her after, you know, having these two movies. And at this at this stage, it's like she wouldn't get with the program. She successfully fought off this baton passing that he wants because he wants to get free of this on some level, right? And it would have worked well with what they're doing with the little boy Danny in this movie because now he's the one being groomed, but originally it was Jamie being groomed. And in a sense, like, she was strong enough to survive. Like, yeah, she stabbed her adopted mother, but she didn't kill her and she came back from it. She bounced back from it. And the same thing is happening here. And maybe this kid, Danny, loses that battle. And that would have paid off the whole thing for both Jamie and the kid. Because the idea being that if you're a kid in this cursed family, it sucks. Like, you either become the next killer or you die. It's that simple. And he he kills Jamie, you know, because she no longer has any any utility. Like, he's given up on her in some way. And now he's going to focus on on Danny. Like, I think that could have all been pretty cool and pretty powerful, but no, they just can't quite get those things to work. Well, I th- again, I think they're, they're leaning back towards uh, what I think of as a Friday the 13th trope. And particularly I'm thinking of, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Friday the 13th part two, where in the very first scene, the, uh, the survivor from the first movie gets an ice pick in the head. Yeah. Uh, although, to be fair, that's pretty much what we do with Rachel at the beginning of Halloween five is just to dispatch the survivor from the first movie. So, you know, again, you're using her as your your sort of opening scare because it's got not that bad, though. I mean, I, she gives him a run for his money, at least in this movie compared to. Yes, I agree. I agree. No, that's true. Well, although remember, Rachel, Rachel actually does okay. She's she's the one who runs out of the house and calls the police and mm-hmm. has a dog and and that kind of thing. But I agree, it's it's not quite that perfunctory. But that's the the sense from the writing is if you were going to introduce all that stuff, you were going to have to invest in this character, and they're not invested in any of the characters. They wanted to they wanted to dispatch her as quickly as possible. Uh, so that we could get on with introducing our next crop of cannon fodder. Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah. So after uh, Jamie does meet her end here, and I think that kind of ends Act 1, and then they sort of reframe everything and echo the original in the sequels with some supers on the screen uh, over the neighborhood. And it says Haddonfield and, you know, date and the and the year um, over a neighborhood shot. And it really does look like the season, at least in this film. They shot it in Salt Lake City, but we've got leaves. And um, all right. So we're 
Halloween 1995, 18 years after 1977 at this point, which, by the way, Vic, is only the difference between now and 2000. Think about that. Jesus. So Laurie Strode would be roughly 32 years old at this point, by the way. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So we see uh, the evil drunk Strode dude, uh, who we're going to learn is <laughs> John Strode. <laughs> We see him chopping up a, a kid's prank, and uh, we're going to meet his wife, Deborah, soon. And I think that this little couple, this family, could be interesting if it if they had just depicted them and their relationship to the other characters with any kind of care and thought and inspiration. But they don't, so they're they're kind of just awful, awful, thin characters. And it does, I mean, this is, like, this breakfast scene is the scene where it's like, here's the relationship between all these characters, like, nail, you know, hammer hitting the, the nail on the head yeah. for every one of the relationships, uh, including, by the way, the the sort of strange introduction that, like, Kara showed up with Danny, but, and and uh, John calls her, calls him a bastard, so we did we never find out who the father is, which feels like maybe there's some sort of lingering mystery around it, but they would never they you know they'd never get back to that. Um, but it is like, and it's as a as a writer, I've encountered these scenes, and it's like, here you're making a horror movie, everything's gotta be scary. You've got one scene to cram in whatever the character relationships are. And so the, you know, to do that in any way that feels organic and not sort of clunky and forced and the the you know, the, the dialogue is bad and that kind of stuff is really challenging. So I'm sympathetic, uh, but it's bad. Like, it's just it's just a bad scene. And the relationship, the other thing is when you introduce all that stuff, you have to be planting seeds that are going to come to some sort of thematic fruition, uh, which they have very little interest in. The biggest thing I took away from it was that any relation of the Strodes moved into the fucking Myers house. <laughs> yeah. Really? Like, I know you couldn't sell it, but like, I, I don't know. It, that was just, that, that was beyond the pale. Well, even if like, it were somehow theoretically plausible that the fact that they represented this house and and obviously nobody would buy it and now it's um 18 years after the original crimes that they would be forced to live there but the fact that we learned that tim the uh john's son the older brother of um i don't even know if he's the older brother of um danny but it's so whatever but he's yeah. the younger brother of Kara, at least. We know that. Um, well, he doesn't even know that they live in the Myers house. Everybody in this fucking town knows the Myers house by now, it's, right? That I mean, makes no sense. Yeah. That was when the when the girlfriend brings that up later, like, uh, Beth, right? Beth? Is yeah. Like Beth, Beth. bringing it up. To, I was like, uh, I was pulling my hair out. Like, how? I Yeah. It, I, I, I don't have words. I'm, no. I'm, a, pod, I'm a podcaster. Without the words to explain this how movie, you could possibly write that in. It will have that effect on you. It's it's yeah. stupefying. It, it is stupefying. And yeah, we do have like this very contrived 
ultra over the top conflict between John the dad and and Kara like he fucking hates her and all the best that we can realize from this is that she left and got knocked up and it didn't work out with the guy and then she moved back in with her son and it really is cramping his style right and yes and like what style and also <laughs> like i the kids like 9 like is he you know nine? what i mean like I don't know. I mean, I'm making that up, but he's, he's definitely like an older kid, like in the overall scheme of cramping your style, like it's not like they have to babysit a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, obviously you wouldn't be thrilled to have the, I mean, it's not an empty nest because there's, there's Tim, but suddenly like you, you have two more bodies in the house, but it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And he, he it's very oblique. But she did something, and he's a total asshole to her. He hits her, he draws blood from her nose, and then suddenly, um, not in the version you watched, but Dr. Uh, oh, almost gave it away. Um, the, the man in black shows up to talk to Danny and invokes him, and he puts a knife to, to John's belly. And uh, this kid is never convincing at all as potentially a killer uh, to me whatsoever. Uh, That's... That's true, but I actually thought that the because you hear you hear the man in black talking to him in the mm-hmm. producer's cut, I actually thought it worked better because I got everything without that. Oh, it works. Like the better. idea when he when he just looks down and sees the knife in his belly and you and then you know, oh, this is the kid who's been sleeping in Michael Myers' room. You sort of put it together. Is this house sort of infected with something that but it's also just a normal reaction in a way. I mean, the guy just hit your mom. Yes. Well, that's, I mean, again, that's what, that's what makes it interesting is it's on a one to 10 reaction scale. Doing what he did is a, is a, you know, an eight, whereas a normal reaction might be a five, you know, he might've gotten in front of her. He could have done a lot of other things without the, without the, the voiceover from the man in black. It has an element of subtlety to it, which mostly this movie lacks. Can we talk about, by the way, we, we sort of skipped over this, that one of the things, one of the big differences between the two cuts is that they use as transitions these crazy quick flash cuts to things that have no connection to what's going on. In the uh, theatrical cut. In the theatrical cut, exactly. That are awful. So just I just bear in mind as we're talking about this movie that in between every scene, sometimes in the middle of scenes, there's just the sound of knife slashing and, and pictures of knives and blood and, and, and people being stabbed or I don't know what else. I feel like uh, I did you a disservice, Vic, because, I mean, I, I originally we talked about this and I thought you were going to watch the producer's cut. And, like, to me... It's not good, but like it's a it's a legitimate Halloween sequel for what that's worth. But well, the I, theatrical cut is is fucking horrible, practically troll two level bad. <laughs> well, but that's the point is I think that that we're able to bring those those two perspectives to it. Mm-hmm. So it's like I said, I I just want to make sure that people know. Look, when we're talking about this, there's all kinds of other terrible things happening. <laughs> yeah. that are not related to the plot <laughs> yes there's there's awful filmmaking spliced into this as well and i think that's you know like i said that's sort of relevant because the, the story at this point is mostly going to progress pretty much the same way uh at least until we get to the end but that's a very simple those, story 
those little cutscenes are just every one of them was like needles in my eyes in a in a bad way. I, I wish there had actually been needles in eyes, but I know, like audition looks like a, a lovely experience compared yeah, to watching right. this movie. So uh, we meet the new character, Beth, who's dating Tim, and she lives across the way in the same boarding house as Tommy, the Blankenship boarding house. And by the way, the boarding house itself is such a dated idea. Like, can you even imagine, Vic, in your life, have you ever been aware of a boarding house? Like, I thought that was like 1956. I rented a room in a house when I first moved to Los Angeles with two or three other sort of adults. Uh, so yes, John, I, I've actually lived in a in a boarding house. It was a, it was a weird experience. Mm. I lived with a, a a very experienced jazz drummer, uh, a meth addicted set uh, builder, and mm. uh, uh, a guy who had extensive experience uh, in distribution for pornography. Wow, that that sounds like a sitcom. It it was it was more inter. I only wish that that cast of characters had been sharing the Blankenship house with Tommy Doyle. <laughs> But no, unfortunately, it's just Beth, who I do, I really like. She's very much a product of the 90s, and she even kind of looks like Feruza Balk, the queen of the early and mid-90s, in my mind, at least in genre cinema, because she's got kind of the eyes. Did you did you feel that at all? Did she re- remind you? Uh, yes. I, I mean, I would say yes, that sort of quintessential 90s uh, uh, girl. And I especially liked, I mean, she had a little bit of Tina's kind of it's Halloween. We're going to, we're bringing this back. Like she yeah. had a little bit of that enthusiasm. It wasn't fleshed out as much, but, but she had a little spunk that I, that, that I did actually like. Well, I think it was funny because like, she's almost an activist for it. And I guess that's her motivation for getting on the Barry Sims show is that she's like, I'm the champion of the teenagers who want to have Halloween in this town and we don't want the grownups to tell us like what to do. And it has like almost kind of this whiff of the college-y stand-up and, and protest, whatever it is that you are passionate about. It felt like a product of the 90s in a way that kind of resonated with me, that this is her cause. It's the closest that the movie gets to exploring some of the the sociological uh, aspects of canceling Halloween and what Michael Myers has done to this town and that kind of thing. Uh, it they don't get very far into it. It doesn't get fleshed out in any meaningful way. But insofar as it exists in this movie, you're going to mention that they they haven't celebrated Halloween in six years. This is the closest we get to any sort of exploration of that. And she could have been a very interesting conduit for looking into that. Mm -hmm. Like every other character, it's a very sketchily drawn character, but she's a charismatic figure on the, on the screen in in a traditional way, but with like a little bit of nineties flavor. So I didn't mind having her around while she's here. So Tommy goes to the bus station and this is where he finds the baby. And I think this is good from a narrative perspective. Because up to this point, he's just weird in a broad way and it's not great. But in theory, it's kind of a cool character. Because it's the creepy weirdo who's photographing you. But he's actually a hero once you really kind of understand what he's doing. Even though he's still a little pervy when he sniffs Kara's hair in the bedroom later. <laughs> well... This is this is one of the only scenes where we get to see him do what feels like some real detective work too. Mm-hmm. 
You know, like he has some agency. He's actually doing something in a lot of ways. I mean, he's he's kind of as ineffectual as Loomis is, you know, for for a lot of this movie. It's nice to see him actually do something and actually help somebody. He has his wins in the course of this story. And, um, you know, just to touch on his performance, Paul Rudd's performance in general, obviously he's selling poor material here and he's a young actor without a lot of experience, but it's just clear he's not comfortable as an actor playing this character. And it kind of works because he's supposed to be an uncomfortable guy, but it just sort of plays as mannered. Uh, This is not a performance that is a highlight on his reel. Lots of people have this performance, this performance in their resume. Again, if you were going to talk about Kevin Bacon and Friday the Thirteenth, or Jennifer Aniston and uh, Leprechaun, you know, well, this is a big part, though. I mean, he's the fucking lead. He is the lead. No, it's true. He's a young actor with in a in a bad movie with a bad script, quirking it up for ninety minutes. Yeah, with the the Um, head jiggle and the, the way that he leaves with the baby hunched over in the hospital a bit later, it's just ridiculous. This is strange. Well, it's, it's a little bit like I mean, you know, the 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 story goes that the uh, the Zucker, uh, the Abrams brothers, or David Zucker, right? Mm-hmm. Jim, the Abrams Jim brothers Abrams, and David, yeah. yeah, that they saw Leslie Nielsen in all these like uh, serious roles, but not prom night, obviously, but maybe prom night. I don't know, but they saw him in all these serious roles, delivering this terrible dialogue, and were like, you know, that guy could be funny. If he if he if his lines were actually ridiculous, there's a sense in which I feel like you can look at this and go, maybe that Paul Rudd should try comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I think his next part after this was Clueless. Well, I haven't seen Clueless uh, in a long time, but I definitely don't remember feeling like he was out of his depth or uncomfortable or an amateur. So he he'd found something there that he doesn't have here. Let's put it that way. My reaction to Clueless as uh, the the child of divorce with multiple uh, step siblings as totally weirded out that the basically the the movie culminates in him hooking up with his stepsister. It's kind but, of like Michael banging his niece. <laughs> yes, it's, except except charming. But yeah. you know it's. <laughs> So he he takes the baby to the hospital, right? This he is does, and he immediately loses his shit on the nurse for not doing what he wants, like, that second. Yes. But he also, one of the things I loved is they pointed this out. So in the producer's cut that you watched, Jamie actually survives. Yep. And is in the hospital. And so if you're watching the theatrical cut, Paul Rudd shows up at the hospital with the baby and the, uh, I, I forget, you know, the nurse, I think the nurse calls security or something. And he's mm-hmm. like, Dr. Loomis. And you have no idea why Dr. Loomis is at the hospital. Well, it's a completely <laughs> nonsensical film. I mean, makes, Loomis is just milling around. Yeah. yeah. Yes. He's Loomis is just, you know, standing around like a, like a Alzheimer's patient who doesn't know how he ended up here. It's, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous and sad. But no, actually, he's there um, for Jamie in the in the true narrative of this of this film, which is yeah. the producer's cut. Well, Vic, I just cracked another wolf pup, so let's pick up the pace and get to the next kind of meaningful scene, which is when Mrs. Strode, played by Kim Darby, is um, going about her business in this house and finding the laundry machine on and moving a, a box of. Uh, paint rollers and whatnot and we're kind of building up to michael's inevitable presence but they're they're trying to make a lot of hay out of this laundry machine and i do find it funny because nothing is so scary as a laundry machine right 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, she finds it on, and, oh, good, there's just sheets in there. And then later her husband comes, and, oh, my God, the power's out. But the laundry machine is still on! The washing machine is still on. And at, at that point, there's bloody sheets in the laundry machine. Michael kills... Kim Darby, who, by the way, um, she's very dowdy in this, but she's the mom in Better Off Dead, and she was in Don't Be Afraid of the Dark before that, and True Grit a long time before that. And I'll just throw out that her death scene takes place among hanging bedsheets, which I've still never seen a human being who dries bedsheets on a a clothesline, Uh, but another another one of the shameless sort of fan service scenes of like, oh, remember that time Michael was standing behind a bedsheet? Well, it just reminds me of, like, I think there's a few things in the David Gordon Green thing, like the woman with hair curlers. I'm like, oh, yeah, because everyone really wants to be reminded of things that only happened in the 20th century or before. Exactly. Yeah. We have a little jump scare with Loomis suddenly appearing before she gets killed, and he just let himself into their house, and she lays a whole he lays a whole rap on old Mama Strode about Michael. She gets nothing out of it, and neither does the audience, really. Then we get a little backstory about John Strode, the douchey dad, and yeah, the thing that you were mentioning before about him knowing that the house was the Myers house and couldn't sell it. And, you know, Deborah calls him and confronts him with this, but she's still hanging out in the house. The man who tried to murder her niece. <laughs> yeah, she has zero knowledge grew about up, that. Grew up in this house, in this, all in the same town, and yeah, nobody's mentioned it. It's no. just, it's silly. Yeah, I mean, both of them seem to have no connection to Jamie at all. Like, they're not aware of her or... Yeah. The, like they have amnesia about everything salient here. So she gets her suitcase. So I guess she's leaving and that's good. And then she notices that that box of paint and whatnot that she brought inside earlier that nobody fucking noticed. Well, uh, or she took outside. Now it's back inside. And I guess we, we remember that. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's not that she picked up the axe. She picked up the axe. Oh, the axe in the box when she brought it in. And so she notices the axe is missing. Oh, okay. See, thank yeah. you, Vic. Thank you for paying closer attention than, than I did. I guess now she knows somebody's in the house, but she still makes phone calls. And then this is the real capper. She's running out and she's thwarted by the presence of her own backyard fence. Yes, but she did not apparently know was there. Yeah, she would have totally escaped the situation if, if the family had not put in a fence there like six years ago or whatever. We get this little, um, you know, Michael behind the sheet and blood spraying the sheet and yada, yada, bullshit. And then Danny uh, sees the man in black on the street and he looks really silly in broad daylight in his little (laughs) getup. Well, which is, I mean, Michael Myers has always been somebody who was frightening in broad daylight. It's been one of the things that's kind of unique about him among slashers. Uh, The man in black is, is not. You're right. No. No, he's not in the Pantheon. He's a misfire that we sadly had to had to make work in two movies. So at, at some point, old John the douchebag, abusive dad, husband, realtor guy comes back to the house and it's his turn to get killed, which of course in the mythos of horror, he, he richly deserves a good demise. And he kind of gets it in the um, theatrical cut with the head blowing up and all this where he's sort of pinned to a, a electrical box that we painstakingly set up earlier. And I, the only interesting thing about, I, about this scene for me is that um, 
we all ba- have a basic working knowledge of electricity and the fact that Michael can pin him with a knife through his gut to this box and yet he's not getting electrocuted. I think that kind of is a definitive note that Michael has transcended the human physicality and is now impervious to electricity. He's got the power of the druids, man. Yeah. He's got the, he's got the, he's the mark of the thorn. Well, I guess that's the mark of immortality. And Uh, yeah, I guess we're being explicit with that six, seven movies in, but uh, apparently Michael still believes in uh, washing bloody sheets because that sheet that the mom got uh, splattered, her blood splattered uh, ends up in that, in that uh, washing machine. But Kara doesn't find it because he's cleaned up the entire scene. And now uh, we're going to have a bunch of characters wandering around this house with no idea that two people have been murdered here. And uh, she finds Danny and Tommy upstairs together, and now they're best friends, and the dialogue is brutal. It's just terrible. (laughs) (laughs) That that is correct. But they bond, and now Tommy takes Kara and uh, Danny back to his place across the street, and we get headlines like, Local Tot Kills Older Sister, which I love. And they name all the all the characters involved like they're celebrities whose names everyone in town knows already. And except it, except apparently the people living in Michael Myers' house. Yeah, nobody read any of these headlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least if you're a strode. In the producer's cut now, we cut to Jamie unconscious in her hospital bed, and we have this kind of previously on Halloween montage. It's bad music video stuff. Jamie's begging for for forgiveness and the man in black spurs are jangling and it's all very nasty and rapey as uncle Michael is coming out there at his niece. And it's just, wow, it's, it's really not working at all. And then when just shoots, uh, Oh, sorry. Gave it away. The man in black is win everybody. <laughs> I like how we're not even going to edit that out. But nope. We could, we could use the magic of editing to contain nope. the surprise, but it's a bad surprise. So guess what? When is the man in black? Yeah. And this is roughly the part of the movie where you find that out anyway. But uh, he he just ignominiously shoots Jamie in the head. That's the end mm-hmm. of her. I guess we get a little bit of backstory where Tommy is explaining shit to Kara uh, as they look at their 90s computer graphics. But that- it's all it's all just nonsense as a kid, like being really invested in four and five and like wanting to know who the man in black is and wanting to know who broke Michael out of jail. And here it is. I'm going to get the answers. I was so excited for this. Mm -hmm. And like, this is the scene where this shit starts to leak out. And I was like, what? Paul Rudd can't even sell it. Like it's, it's, (laughs) these scenes are so painful. The computer graphics, even when the graphics were like state of the art, this shit still was just terrible. I love that you, you referenced uh, the breakout scene. Yes, we're supposed to believe that this middle-aged to elderly hospital administrator went into a jail and killed dozens of cops Terminator style. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the Strodes live in the Myers house and thus by default they are Michael's family and thus he must kill them. And I guess that kind of explains why Danny must or can take the mantle because the evil believes that it's Mikasa, Sukasa, welcome to the family. And plus the Thorn constellation is back in the stars. So it's back after six years. And that's why Michael is back too. 
I guess that's it. I did like, I mean, the one, one of the things that I liked when Loomis is talking to the mom, he says, this place is sacred to him. One of those little tiny pinpricks of light in this mm-hmm. otherwise shitty tapestry uh, that I was like, oh, like that's an interesting idea because we do keep coming back to the Myers house and like, what does it mean to him? But you'd have to be exploring his character and his psychology for that to mean anything. And we're not exploring his character, or his psychology. We're exploring the druids. So, well, but kind of by default, the narrative is saying, is telling us that. Michael's endgame that we were sort of wondering at. And, and in the last movie where Loomis is is basically offering a way out for Michael, this movie is saying, well, the cult is offering him a way out, which is because when he kills the last one in, in the family, his curse ends and it's passed on to another child and Michael gets to retire. So, I mean, there is something to that that we're finally giving the character, like he's working his way towards something yeah that's a good point i don't mind that so now we cut to barry sims doing his live show in haddonfield with special guests tim strode and his hot girlfriend beth (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of a, a a dumb scene with some very 90s dated raunchy humor but i do like and this works a lot better in the producer's cut that after this scene Barry wanders off and they're going to move the production to this, the, the Strode slash Myers house and he gets in the wrong van. Yeah. Now that could be really dumb, but to me it actually kind of works because in the producer's cut, you pan from one generic van to another and you sort of see what happened. And it, it's kind of pleasing that that's how this guy meets his end. Yeah, and well, and Barry is a a sufficiently clueless douchebag mm-hmm. that you can see him just picking a ra- you know getting pissed off that he can't find his van and and getting in there totally. And he has a horrendous line that he delivers over the phone with his staff: "Kick the audience in the face enough, and they'll lick you all over." <laughs> <laughs> like I said, sufficiently clueless douchebag. Yeah, <laughs> and yet you know, again, like like the. John Strode, you create these unctuous characters that we're dying to see die in, in, a, in a fun and satisfying way. And it's just a kind of an ordinary kill with Michael stabbing Barry below the frame. There's not really any juice to it. But it's part of the it's part of the Friday the 13th vibe, right? Like Brady was kind of the bad guy in Halloween 4, but he was also vaguely sympathetic. And he went out on kind of a, a redemptive upswing. Here, they, 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 these people really do feel like cannon fodder. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is another a trick right out of the Friday the 13th uh, bag of tricks in that, like, yeah. create unctuous characters that, like, Dr. Cruz in The New Blood, you know, yes. where we can't wait to see this guy buy it. And, yeah, this film, again, more than any other, is sort of taking cues from Friday, which is something that... Say what you want, like, about Halloween movies. They don't seem to exist in the world of, oh, let's let's cash in on, on slasher movie trends. Like, they are their own thing up until now. As we go forward, I feel like this is the one time that they gave in to those impulses. It feels lazy when I see, when I see it being done this way. 
So it's nice that I feel like this is the one time that they got lazy and what makes this a fun franchise to do because we're we were just sliding towards this all along and now we get to climb our way out of it starting with the next one. That that was my wrap up thought and I fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a wrap up thought. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done. Okay, I'm done. That's it. But all the time I can spend on this, forget it. Meanwhile, Tim and Beth are still getting it on back in the Myers Strode house. Knowing, and- by the way, that fucking Barry Sims, they think Barry Sims is on the way. And they're like, let's take off all our clothes. We'll get in a quickie before that guy shows yeah. up and talks about crotchless panties and barking like a dog some more. So Tim has a terrible line here. He's in a hot shower. There's steam everywhere. And he says, give me a towel. I'm freezing. What yeah. the fuck? But Michael... Gives him the fucking yeah. towel. Michael gives him a towel, which uh, I do appreciate. Uh, <laughs> and we see the fucking tattoo as well. Yeah. Um, the thorn tattoo. And I do like that when Michael gets serious and cuts the kid's throat in the mirror, we're, we're, we're getting this sort of mirror shot of this going on. And he slices his arm along the way, kind of as collateral damage at the end. It's a, it's a nice touch. Just happens to be along the path of the knife. That's the only kind of quirky, distinctive thing about this. But yeah, so um, Tim's dead. And under Wynn's influence, Danny walks over to the house and across the street and uh, Kara chases after him. Exploring the house, uh, Kara is confronted by her mother's corpse, which uh, drops out of, I guess, the attic. Um, but she just carries on. There's no beat of shock, horror, and grief at that. Kind of feels like a missed opportunity. She ends up in a room with some cultists. She sees that Wynn has Danny. And in this movie, jumping out the window to escape does not work at all. In your version of the movie, Vic, that I prefer not to talk about, um, mm-hmm. she ends up in, a, in an asylum cell, and the producer's cut, Kara ends up on the sacrificial slab. And what do you know? There's more candles, because there's just no such thing as too many. And everyone in this town loves their damn candles. So there's somewhere in Haddonfield, there's a, there's a very successful candle store. Oh, God. I mean, that person you know, retired, like, right after this movie. Yeah, like, down, you know, downtown Main Street, that guy, you know, Had- Haddonfield Candle Company. That guy, that guy's rolling in Druid dough. Well, once those Halloween masks went out of favor, you know, 10 years before, <laughs> he had to find a new business. <laughs> yeah. This is the one movie where we don't get anybody pretending to be Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah, there's no playful pranks by the local uh, kids and uh, that go horribly wrong. Nobody gets killed for impersonating him. You're, you're right about yeah. that. But we do get Tommy and Loomis wandering around and explaining to the audience what happened to them in the last scene. Uh, apparently they were drugged and they've been out of commission for a few minutes, but now they're um, they're back in action, which is yeah. just great plan, bad guys. Yeah. Uh, what, <laughs> should we kill those guys? Nah. Just drug nah. them. Knock them out for ten minutes and then let them find us again. I'm I'm pretty sure after a, a lifetime of hunting Michael Myers, I can convince him to join with me and and together we will do whatever it is I have planned to do with Michael Myers. <laughs> well, this story must end in the sanitarium. I will give it that. It does make dramatic sense that they all find their way back to the sanitarium where it all began as far as Loomis's relationship with Michael. Oh, well, I, but even that, I had the sense of like, you know, we, we have, we literally have Loomis saying this place is sacred to him talking about the Myers house. Like I felt like they wind up at the sanitarium because it's kind of the only place left. 
Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> like it's if you're gonna go, if you're gonna keep calling back to these all this stuff. Like there's no other place that Michael has any connection to in the entire franchise except the sanitarium. So we'll go back there. It didn't take a whole lot of brilliant inspiration to reach that conclusion, is what you're telling me. A little more, little more process of elimination than divine inspiration. But they did get one cool hallway to shoot like a dozen times in this movie. Yeah. They shoot their shit out of this one long hallway. Is that the hallway where Paul Rudd just stands while Loomis mm-hmm. goes off to get to get uh, beaten up? Oh, yeah. I mean, basically, the sanitarium is represented by like an office and um, that sort of stone sacrifice room and this hallway. That's that's the yep. entire sanitarium. But it has this kind of semi-Stanley Kubrickian light fixtures, which are sort of okay if you squint at it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Loomis has a gun, and he admits that a gun won't stop Michael, which I think is big progress for him to give <laughs> up on that. <laughs> but he's going to go confront uh, Wynn with, with his gun. And oh, before he leaves, though, uh, we get this line from Tommy. I think Michael is under the influence of an evil rune. And I do think the runes make a little sense here because it feels Carpenter-esque and it does kind of connect to the third movie. It, ultimately, if you if you squint at it, it's a neat solve for Michael's supernatural capabilities. John, I, I just want to stress, there was a long, heavy, what they used to call a pregnant pause of just dead air when you said that he says, I think, I think Michael is under the influence of a rune. Yeah. And I just want to be sure that you leave that in there because <laughs> that symbolizes all of uh, what's wrong with this movie. Just, just everybody take a minute, back up 30 seconds, listen to that moment of dead silence because Michael is under the influence of a rune. I, I delivered that line only about, Eight percent worse than Paul Rudd did. Yeah. <laughs> did you? If you just twitch your head to the right when you say it, that would have made up the eight percent. You, you at least you at least get down to you get down to five percent. <laughs> but what else? What else could he do with a line like that? And again, it's not even that is not anybody's fault. Some other schmuck put a rune on Michael's wrist, and they were like, "Fix this," you know. Uh, Well, again, though, of all the things, like, they jettison the psychic connection between Jamie and Michael. They lose a bunch of things from these films, but they choose, they're like, oh, no, we got to keep the rune, man. Like, that's, people would be pissed if we didn't have the man in black and the fucking rune. Well, they lose Jamie. They trade in the most interesting, like, not just the psychic connection, they trade in the whole character for a baby. If you just replaced the baby with Danielle Harris, this movie would be 30% better. I will say in like very classical dramatic terms, like protecting a baby is, it's like a folktale, you know, like they're on pretty firm dramatic ground at getting us to root for Tommy uh, shepherding this baby safely. Like it's just a primal thing. We're going to we're going to be on board with that. We're going to be somewhat emotionally invested in this fucking baby being safe, you know? And I think the movie does a reasonably good job of building a lot of the story around protecting this, this baby. I and, guess, but the baby gives a terrible performance. <laughs> so wouldn't. I, he's got nothing on the goat that played Black Phillip in The Witch, all right? Well, true, true. I mean, but that, <laughs> I don't think the baby has an Instagram account. Uh, well, maybe now. <laughs> 
after this podcast. Yeah. yeah. So Loomis confronts Wynn in his office, and there's two versions of this, one of which he's wearing the dopey cult outfit, um, and then the other where he's wearing his normal hospital administrator, E-Garb. And it's the same Loomis performance because, of course, it's a reshoot, and uh, they only had one performance from Donald Pleasance before he died. I'm not going to comment too much on the, the variations between the two scenes, but uh, Wynn more or less tries to explain what the hell he's doing as a cult leader and protecting Michael, and it's Loomis's turn now to take over that role, which begs the question, has Michael ever needed protection? Have we ever seen Michael receive any protection? I, I guess maybe if this is a way to retcon in some of the idiotic decisions made to transfer Michael between facilities on Halloween, I guess this actually kind of explains that. The idea that Loomis should take over, given that he's had a stroke and is clearly yeah. older than Wynn is, that's that's just silly. But uh, I've said silly too much. That's dumb. <laughs> okay, we got we got one synonym: uh, silly and dumb. Yeah, dumb. Yeah, Bo- both of them dumb. are appropriate. It's, but... it's absurd. Uh, let me pull up. I'm pulling my thesaurus here. <laughs> As an editor. I would really struggle with the fact that the version uh, with more information, the producer's cut version is, I think, in terms of the expository content, superior to the theatrical cut. But the outfit is so ridiculous Mm -hmm. that I don't know which one I would go for. Like, it's a a Sophie's choice. (laughs) Where you want to kill both of the kids? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would have been a different movie. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, slightly. "Can you just kill both of them?" There <laughs> we go. Uh, now, now it's gotten dark. <laughs> no good, real dark. I, I I agree with that. I can't argue with that. I mean, I, the one thing conceptually about this sequence, which I kind of like, is that when Loomis refuses this invitation to take over, for once, Loomis isn't the craziest guy in the room. And yeah. I, th- I think that if they'd built to it better and or giving given him a better line, we might be loving this moment. But he just calls him a madman, which is kind of the weakest, most corny way to do it. It feels like a 1950s movie. And I think Pleasance sells the line, as with so many. But this scene doesn't really work. And uh, yeah, what else is new in this film? Kara is about to get sacrificed in the producer's cut. And... She shouts to the room that they're going to kill uh, Michael's baby along with her in this rite of human sacrifice. And apparently that's news to him and that 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 the baby is, is his. And he sort of semi has, it's not well executed, but he kind of reacts in a way that reminds me of Vader turning on the Emperor and buys them a little time somehow. Tommy makes his move and they escape. And it's 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 dumb but i i just think oh or silly too it's dumb yeah. and, and, and absurd yeah. also yeah it's all uh, those things but michael let's talk briefly about michael's relationship to this cult like he's sort of standing there again like vader but he's an errand boy and an assassin and to me it just sort of diminishes michael his relationship to this cult if you think about all of Loomis's dialogue for four of the five movies leading up to this, it's been building Michael up as the the, the height of evil, the, the pure, unadulterated awfulness and, and, and evil and emptiness. And like, you know, it, he is such a horrifying character coming up to this. 
And so to see him standing idly by mm-hmm. uh, while they're about to sacrifice Kara, you know, just like a prop in this sort of ceremony, they rob him of all of his menace. They take away everything that makes him a frightening character. The whole idea that he's sort of subjugated by this cult. I mean, it's it's ill-conceived from the word go. And while, again, I understand that the path that this franchise has gone up to this point, like this is just kind of where it arrives. At a certain point, you have to explain, much like Friday the 13th did with Friday the 13th Part 6, you have to explain why he never dies. You have to explain why he keeps keeps trying to kill his family. If you're going to keep making movies, you've got to fill in some of these blanks or else you're just repeating yourself. And they've just picked the worst. It's like Mad Libs. (laughs) If you're going to fill in all those blanks. And that's, this scene is the, the culmination of that. It's the culmination of Mad Libs Michael Myers, you know, where you've just picked druids and incest and baby mm-hmm. and uh, Paul Rudd. That does sound <laughs> like know? Mad Libs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then you put all those things together and now, and, and this is the scene you get. He's taking orders from something. It's plausible that he's sort of the ultimate hitman of evil uh, in some way. And by ultimately discovering who's been pulling his strings, there might be a story there on some level that like he was compelled to do this. He didn't know why he's never known why. And somehow by connecting with this cult, he gets some answers into that. And maybe he even comes to grips with the fact that he's been manipulated and maybe he's going to make, have some agency. He's going to make some decision about that. All of those could be interesting things, but it doesn't, you know, they don't do anything with it. Nope. Not even a little bit. Now, we do get Tommy uh, throwing down some rune stones and casts a protection spell or whatever, and Michael cannot pass. And Tommy, (laughs) (laughs) you shall not pass. Oh, oh, to have seen Paul Rudd deliver that line. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely had an Ian McKellen thing going on at this point in his career. So he says uh, Sam Hain when it's really uh, – I actually have the pronunciation here. Uh, Sawin is, is how you're supposed to say that. But he yeah. says Sam Hain, and that's the magic words. And Michael uh, is frozen, and they get out, and they escape in the uh, producer's cut. This is – and I think that there's a real missed opportunity. I mean what else is new in this film? But I think the idea that there would be runes that could counterbalance this thorn thing – does make a little bit of sense. It's a logical weapon. It would be an interesting bookend for Tommy Doyle's story that, you know, he's confronting his boogeyman here. He's been haunted for 18 years by this. It's twisted him into a pretty messed up guy, but he has this kind of cathartic moment. And he gets this win because he's figured it out. It's a lot to ask for Halloween 6, I know, but it doesn't doesn't happen. And then the runes don't work on Wynn, who shows up, and he crosses them, and he joins Michael, and we see Michael's fist clench, which I guess is supposed to tell us that Wynn and the cult betrayed him somehow. I don't know. If so, I missed it. We cut to Tommy, Kara, and Danny in the car, and Loomis doesn't leave with them, and he says something. Again, this is the producer's cut. He says, I have to attend to some business, and we don't know what it is. He goes back to see what Michael's up to. I guess that's his business. And he finds him lying on the ground. He keeps saying, Michael, Michael, to the, to the body. 
Um, but it's actually Wynn wearing the jumpsuit and mask uh, fully decked out as Michael. I guess Michael dressed him. Wynn doesn't seem critically injured or anything. No sign of harm whatsoever. But he says to Loomis, it's your game now, Dr. Loomis. And the Mark of Thorn appears on Loomis's wrist. And I guess it's sort of Lovecraftian, the idea that like, like Loomis is destined to become the cult leader. He's cursed, you know. It's an appropriately apocalyptic thing to happen to this dude. What a fun life he's led that it, it takes him to this point. I don't I don't hate that, theoretically. I hate it. <laughs> I will choose from this day forward to believe that Dr. Loomis did die face to face with Michael Myers at yeah. the end of Halloween five. And that this was all some sort of fever dream that he had before the life left his body. Uh, because to have given him again, cause it was not so long ago that I listened to our Halloween five podcast to have given him what felt like an appropriate ending to feel like his his character had been brought full circle that this was the this was the the place for him to let go it fit it was right it was good it was indiana jones and the last crusade and this is indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull <laughs> they should have just let it go it's awful this movie is positing that michael puts on the man in black man in black regalia he doesn't switch the shoes, though. I guess he no. doesn't. He refuses to wear spurs. He he really likes his. Little... <laughs> <laughs> but you'd be able to hear him coming. Like you wouldn't be able to sneak up on anybody if he had spurs. <laughs> but let's do the movie the courtesy of taking this ending seriously. Let's mm. let's put it. Let's think it through. He dons the outfit. He goes out into the world. So is, this is his new identity. I guess he's the new man in black. Is he going to go whisper to little boys until they kill their family members? Is he going to start a new cult? I mean, he's made the choice to appropriate the man in black's look. So that has to mean something, right? It's not like in the previous films where uh, he's got to wear a hospital Johnny for a while until he can find a mechanics jumpsuit. He's never left his mask behind on purpose before, like in a permanent way. Even in, in five, he tries out the other guy's mask, but, you know, he's just, he's messing around. Here, he seems to abandon his identity. Is there anything interesting about that? Like, what do we, what do we take from that? That is this a big leap forward for Michael? Like, just in the context of this movie, do we think from this, he's evolving in some way? And the short answer is no. <laughs> he, he can't talk. All the man in black does is whisper to Danny. So no, you would, you would have had to have grown his character more, explored his psychology more. We sort of skipped over, I don't want to say skipped over it because that implies that we should have talked about it more, <laughs> but there's the moment when, uh, uh, Paul Rudd sort of presents him with the, what he thinks is the baby and you see Michael Myers like cock his head to the side or you get the moment, you know, in the in the sacrifice or whatever, when he sort of recognizes that she has a child, although he's not connected to somehow he figured out how to drive a car, but not how human reproduction works. He would have had to have moved a lot. And A, Michael Myers shouldn't evolve that much as a character. You're undermining what makes Halloween effective if you make Michael Myers into something else. No, it doesn't. I, they they didn't they didn't earn that. There's there's nothing that suggests that it would work. 
and he would be a terrible man in black. Like I said, he can't he can't whisper. If you can't whisper menacingly and you can't wear spurs, then you're not really the man in black. He and he, he doesn't smoke or use a shotgun. He would be a shockingly subpar hospital administrator. He does hate dogs. Man in black kicks the dog. Michael Myers oh, killed right. a lot of dogs. Good point. All right, so they have that in common. That's there's that. So we can't take that seriously. Now I think let me lay this on you. I think it they got it wrong. It should have been Tommy who becomes Michael. Because if he'd used the power of the runes, it would have had an ironic effect in that it would work, but it would have an unexpected consequence, this magic that he surely, surely does not understand. And so it would actually join them. And I think that maybe that's what the cult wanted all along, is how you would sort of play it. Well, actually, you could have had both, where Loomis becomes the cult leader and Tommy is Michael, because that would have been really fucked up for both of them. Like, if that's where we end this, if you're passing the baton, is that the curse has passed out of the family and now it's in Tommy's family. And if you really wanted to play that out, you would have had some of Tommy Doyle's family in the movie. And so now we know he's going to go try to kill them. And I think it would have kind of played out like we almost saw in Friday the 13th with the other Tommy, and I don't think this is a coincidence, Tommy Jarvis, where we almost flirted with the idea of Tommy Jarvis becoming Jason, Well, here Tommy becomes Michael. I think that that might have been a, a better choice for them. It's not a coincidence that it's something that both franchises flirted with is trying to transition the mantle to someone else, right? Yeah. Like it's they wanted to make Tommy Jarvis into the new Jason Voorhees. They wanted to make Jamie into the new Michael Myers. They don't have the courage of their convictions. They can't stick with it. I Again, we, we talked about with Five, as, as much affection as I have for Five, one of the biggest mistakes they made was essentially throwing away the ending of Halloween 4 and, and Danielle Harris not understanding why her character was mute. And so there's an interesting story to be told in slasher movie number four or number five in which the mantle is passed, but you can't chicken out. <laughs> and yeah. both these franchises chickened out on it. Well, they um, flirt with the idea from the very beginning, from Laurie in the classroom. Like, I, I had remembered this, and I had to look up something to, to confirm that this was in my head. It was, was actually correct. And it's referenced in the David Gordon Green film, too. But Laurie is in her high school class, and we get a teacher talking about destiny. And it seems like just sort of filler dialogue but it becomes interwoven intrinsically in all of these stories the idea of why Myers is always brought back all these characters sort of have their, their roles to play and and the the quotation in the movie is that fate is somehow like a natural element like earth air fire and water and in a sense Loomis is just part of that along with anyone else, which I think this movie is trying to explore, there's always a Loomis. Like He's part of the curse. He's drawn to it, and it unlocks his true self as the doomed guardian. And this cycle yeah. is going to continue in some well, way. The, or, the, or the Cassandra. Yeah, right. Like right, he's right. always the one screaming about the, the catastrophe that's coming and no one's listening. And I, again, I agree with you. I love the idea of 
exploring how those mantles are passed on, but you have to pass the mantles. Right. Right. <laughs> and they never have the balls to actually and they do it. Never, and they never have the balls to actually do it. So it's, so what we wind up with is, is this kind of muddled mess of a movie. We've only discussed the, the producer's cut, which is fine. There's no sense in talking about the theatrical cut because it's, well, worse, I mean, do but... you have anything to say about the re- absurd ending of that film? Um, no, it's worse. I mean, again, it's worse. Like at least this one attempts to give Donald Pleasant some sort of closure. Like in the other one, like it's they just cut to black and you sort of hear him scream. Like it doesn't mean he's it, none of it makes any no. sense. It's not. It's not worth. It's not worth addressing. In fact, if I may, as we uh, as I assume we're ready to move on to some uh, final thoughts. Here, yes, I have. I have looked up synonyms for the word silly. Um, and, uh, so I want to, I want to apologize. I should have had this in front of me from the get go, but let me, let me just drop a few of them. If I was to sum up this movie, idiotic, uh, ludicrous, nonsensical, pointless, preposterous, ridiculous, stupid, empty, irrational, asinine. That's a favorite of mine. Brainless, dippy, dizzy, empty headed, uh, fatuous, feather-brained, flighty, foolhardy, hair-brained, ignorant, illogical, for sure. Inane. Don't be fatuous, Jeffrey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Inconsistent, meaningless, muddle-headed, nitwitted, uh, senseless, sheep-headed. I'm not exactly mm. sure what that, because uh, I know what that it means. It goes well but... with bird-brained. Exactly, yes. Uh, unintelligent, unwise, vacuous, and witless. I love this franchise. I love the Michael Myers character. This movie undermines everything that I love about it. That said, nothing. You're supposed to, I'm supposed to say, oh, no, but that said, like, I had a lot of fun with it. I didn't. I, it was actually, it was, it was painful to watch. Uh, I'm sorry that everybody watched it in order to enjoy this podcast. But if you did, at least you get to enjoy the podcast about it because your feelings are hopefully being validated. Paul Rudd went on to better things, and 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 hopefully so did Donald Pleasance. No, this is pretty much his final performance. <laughs> so hopefully Donald Pleasance went on to better things. John. Hey, go go! Oh, I see. In a in a, in a larger sense, yes. <laughs> he went on to the good place. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always watch Wake and Fright if you need a palate cleanser for your, for your yeah, Donald Pleasance. So we'll call it there. I'm definitely looking forward to H2O. I, like, it, I, it felt like we'd never get there, Vic, but uh, that's uh, that's next on the docket. All right, let's we're we're, we're going to get to this one fast. I think I'm I'm ready. I'm excited. I feel like my I I need it. I need H2O. <laughs> I need I need an uptick. I need something to bring my spirits back into the spirit of Halloween. I need the redemption of of Michael Myers and of Laurie Strode and LL Cool J. Give me LL Cool J in a horror movie. Uh, that's because what, that's... Deep Blue Sea uh, wasn't enough. Oh, God, I love Deep Blue Sea so much. <laughs> well, when we do our uh, shark movie season, uh, that might come up. Oh, man, dude, I could I could do a whole season of, uh, of shark movies. I've I seen know you shark, I've seen Shark Night 3D a lot. Who knows what the future holds for sharks or for this podcast, but hope everyone's enjoyed it and we'll see you soon. Adios. Take it easy, guys. <laughs>